Okay, good morning, Bokatov. As uh, last, last uh, Shabbos, we had the privilege of hosting Rabbi Yudin, Rabbi Benjamin Yudin from Fairlawn, New Jersey, was here for a simcha. He spoke Friday night at the Friday Night Live program, the outreach program, and he mentioned how he begins every week on the radio, on JM and the AM, when he gives his Dvar Torah, by saying, this Shabbos, we have the privilege of reading Parshas blank. So, uh, and he said he really feels that way, that our opportunity to read the Parsha each week is indeed a privilege. It indeed, it's a window into the theme of the, uh, of the week. So I, I probably picked that up from him by saying, this week we have the privilege of reading Parshas Kisetze. So we'll do what we always do, which is a quick review or outline of the Parsha, and then delve into uh, some specific verses, some specific psukim. So Parshas Kisetze, as was mentioned, as the most uh, mitzvahs of any Parsha in the Torah. It's uh, really... Uh, um, replete with mitzvahs. It's incredible. Uh, we had a beautiful Dvar Torah last week at Shalashudas where someone quoted of David Tzvi Hoffman who says that the entire structure of Dvarim follows the Aseris Adibros. Moshe, when all of Dvarim, if you follow the themes of the mitzvahs throughout the Parshios of Dvarim, you'll see they correspond with different mitzvahs. So the beginning of Shoftim last week dealt all about justice, judges, honor, truth. That was all losignov. You're not allowed to steal. The end of last week's parsha that dealt with the Egla Rufa and some other issues was function of you're not allowed to murder. And so this, uh, our parsha with its many mitzvos continues in that theme of the Aseris Adibra. So parsha's Kisete begins with Kisete Lemilchama Vecha when you go out and you discover a beautiful woman and you long for her. And here you have a fascinating insight of the Torah which is Lodibra Torah Elekeneged Yetzahara. As Rashi quotes and Ramban quotes, the Torah speaks to man's Yetzahara. There's a whole genre of literature called utopian literature. And there's a question of whether the Torah was designed to be part of utopian literature. Is the Torah describing a perfect world? Is the Torah a formula or prescription for utopia? Or is the Torah a response, an accommodation to the world given the frailties, given the shortcomings of man. So this opening of our parsha and that statement, the Torah is only speaking to the, the frailties, the distractions, the, the foibles of man, that supports the notion that it's not utopian literature. The Torah is not describing a perfect world, the Torah is describing a real world. How do we function in the real world with our shortcomings, with our temptations, with our distractions? How do we yet find meaning in life? And the Torah prescribes what happens when man goes out to war and falls in love with a woman that he shouldn't be. What do you do? How do you react? Because the Torah is describing reality, not the world as we wish it were, but the world as it is. The Torah then talks about the uh, Ben Ahuvah, Ben Snuah, the Bechor, the firstborn son. We then get into the Ben Sora Ramora, the rebellious son, who is an individual that the Gemara says never existed, never will exist. No one ever fits this exact criteria to meet this dead, this appellation, this title of being a Ben Sora Ramora. Why does the Torah tell it to us? Because we extract and extrapolate principles. We learn about education, about parenting, about human psyche, about personality. We're able to learn Torah. We increase Torah through learning it, even if it's not part of practical world, even if it's not part of reality. Torah continues the obligation to care about one another. This is what we covered last year. The prohibition of his salam to You're not allowed to close your eyes. Someone else is suffering, struggling. They need to be lifted up. They're crumbling under their donkey. You have to return their lost item. You're not allowed to live your life and close your eyes. Right? And we spoke about last year. This is in great contrast to American law. American law says walk down the street with your eyes closed. As long as you're not hurting anyone, you're not obligated to intercede on anyone's behalf. Just don't hurt anyone yourself and live a power of neutral life. Judaism says that's not a good person. A good person, that's, if you live a power of life, you're not a bad person. You haven't murdered, stole, raped, pillaged. You're not a bad person. You're not a good person. To be a good American, I don't steal, I don't rape, I don't murder. That's not good. That just means you're not bad. Torah says you want to be good, you never close your eyes. You're never apathetic or indifferent. You're never complacent. You see people have lost an item, you go out of your way to bring it to them. You see somebody's dropped something, you go out of your way to pick it up. You see somebody's donkey animal, you see someone's car is stolen on the side of the road, you get out of your way to help them that is a Torah mandate, that's part of what Torah seeks to cultivate and refine within all of us, you then have a prohibition did you, of sorry, did you miss that Halana Samais? after the yes, Halana Samais, true you're not allowed to, the, the uh, 
obligation of dignity and respect to the deceased, to a corpse. You don't let a, a body lay out overnight. This is a source of our obligation to try to bury as quickly as possible. Discussion in Shuvos, including with Moshe, does this apply the same way now that we have refrigeration and the body is not as exposed to the elements as it once was. But this is the Torah obligation. Then we have a prohibition of male and female garb. You're not allowed to wear begadish and begadisha. They're not allowed to uh, switch clothing. We'll uh, maybe take a look at that um, to begin. We'll go back to those psukim. Torah then tells us the obligation of kan tzipur, of uh, shiluach hakan, shiluach hakain. It's two different ways of pronouncing it. Chassam Sofer, who Rabbi Rabinovicki quoted or made reference, I think it was the Chassam Sofer, who in the introduction to Tshuvas, different sections of his Tshuvas, often writes a poem. And the poem at the introduction to the Tshuvas that deal with uh, Shiluach HaKain, he had, from the way the poem is written, you could tell he was trying to rhyme that I think he called it Shiluach HaKain. In any case, there's a disagreement. But the obligation of sending the mother bird away if you want the eggs, that's what we're going to examine a little bit more closely. Then we have an obligation of Maka. If you buy a home, you have to put a fence, not only around the roof, it's not only an obligation around a roof, it's an obligation around a balcony. If you have a balcony in your home, the guard, the rail, the railing has to be a certain height. If it's not, you have not fulfilled this mitzvah of ma'akeh. We then have a prohibition, you're not allowed to plow two uh, animals together, you can't wear shatnas mixed together, you can't... Um, Gedilim Tasalach, the obligation of tzitzis. And then we continue the definition of a married woman. You marry a woman and you expect it to be one way, you find something else. If it was true, if it wasn't true, adultery, anara murasa, all of the uh, Torah obligations. There's so many mitzvahs, we can't afford to summarize every single one of them right now. I want to get into the psukim themselves. Torah tells us what are the prohibited relationships. You can't marry a mamzer. You're not allowed to marry an amoni or moavi. And this is, of course, referring only to a man. This was the whole question of David's lineage. When, when uh, Shmuel comes to Yishai and says, I know that the next king is going to be from among your children. Let me see your sons one by one. And they're brought to him. And he says, none of these. And then he says, I, I don't know, I guess I was wrong. Well, I have one more, David. So if you look there, there's a lot of uh, written on this. Perhaps the hesitation of Shmuel was this question of David's lineage. Because David descends from? Rus. Rus. And Rus is from? Moab. In fact, who does Rus descend from, from Moab? He descends from? Balak. Why did Balak earn? So, fine. So, David descends from, from uh, Moab. So, uh, so, David clarified, or it was clarified, that Amoni Umoavi, not Amonis Umoavis. That a female descendant of Ammon and Moab is welcome into the community. It is the male descendants who are prohibited. Torah then goes on and talks about the sanctity of the camp. Um, a slave... Purity, prohibition of lending with interest, you're not allowed to lend with interest, you are allowed to lend with interest to a non-Jew, taking vows to Hashem, divorce and remarriage, right? The, the, here's the source of the mitzvah of divorce. Divorce is also a mitzvah. Now it's not a mitzvah chiyuvi, it's not an obligation, we don't have to fulfill it like you put on tzit, like well tzitzah is a bad example also because you're not obligated unless you're wearing a four-cornered garment. But it's not an obligation like putting tefillin on, it's a mitzvah if the circumstances require it. But as opposed to other religions in Judaism, there are times that divorce is completely appropriate and divorce is a mitzvah as well. The old yeshiva joke, in fact, why does Maseches Gittin appear before Maseches Kedushin and Shas? Because Baruch gave the refuah before the makkah. <laughs> Again. So, it's, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that was ever funny. But anyway, so you hear, have a, uh, especially it's not funny today when tragically there are so many uh, divorces. But there is an opportunity to be machzer grusha, so the Torah delineates here. You're allowed to remarry the person whom you've divorced so long as she, the woman, has not been with any other man in between A and B, the husband is not a Kohen. When I've unfortunately... Uh, recently, on many occasions, been involved in being Misadar Get, in, in the uh, giving of the Get. So, um, not that I'm a Misadar Gittin, but acting as a Shliach for a Beisden. So, you remind the couple that even though this is a very difficult moment, they have an opportunity, if neither of them remarries, or with any, if the woman's not with anybody else, they yet have an opportunity to be Machshus Grushoso, they can remarry. But recently, I dealt with the case with a Kohen, basically you realize that it's a very, it's a final moment, it's a finality, it's impossible. If he's a Kohen, this is absolutely conclusive, there is no ability to be Machshus Grushoso, because 
a Kohen is not allowed to marry a divorced woman. It doesn't matter if she's a divorced woman from someone else or if she's divorced from you. But you're not allowed to. Someone who used to live in our community many years ago, they moved away. Not from yourself either. Not from yourself. Correct. So the man, uh, they moved away a long time ago. And I knew, I'd heard they got divorced. So I saw him. And, you know, how's life? What's going on? He said, thank God, I'm remarried. I said, oh, that's fantastic. Who, who is it? He said, you know her very well. I know her very well. He remarried the same woman. Sometimes you get divorced is what's necessary that space in order to get remarried. So the Torah here tells us about Machzir Grusha So. Prohibition of kidnapping a person. Saras and slander. Zachor, Sashar, Sashem, Lekechel, and Miriam. Two of the six Zachiros of the daily obligations to remember. The mitzvahs to remember, to be cognizant, to be aware, to be mindful of certain things appear in our parsha. One is remember what happened to Miriam <coughs> when she spoke Lashon Hara. And the, end, the other is the end of the parsha. Remember about Amalek. The Miriam one I'll just share with you, it always bothered me. I found it kind of ironic that the mitzvah to remind us not to speak Lashon Hara, we speak Lashon Hara about Miriam. Couldn't the Torah have just said, Zachor, remember not to speak Lashon Hara? Remember what happened to Miriam when she spoke Lashon Hara? That's how we remember not to speak Lashon Hara, is by essentially speaking Lashon Hara about someone. Now, obviously the answer is it's not Lashon Hara. Torah tells the stories of all of our, Tanakh is full of stories of all of our great leaders, including the shortcomings, including of their mistakes. So obviously it's not Lashon Hara when it's something for us to learn from, but I've always found it somewhat somewhat ironic. The Ramban actually counts this mitzvah Zachor of Miriam as a mitzvah saseh, a positive commandment of not speaking Lashon Hara. He says, where else do you see in the Torah the mitzvah? How could it be that it's not delineated anywhere, a positive or negative mitzvah? He says it is. Remember what happened in Miriam. Is the positive commandment a prohibition against speaking Lashon Hara? We have the dignity of the debtor. If the debtor gives collateral, but he needs the collateral back at night, she needs the collateral back at night, you have to give it back to them. We have lo sashok shachir ani ve'evyon me'achecha biyomoti tein the obligation of paying a worker on time. You're not allowed to delay in paying a worker. Interesting, um, I don't know how it became the culture in many yeshivas that you don't pay the rebbeim on time. They're makbid, super makbid. They only serve Chal Yisrael in the dining room. Every chumah that exists for man, the yeshiva's makbid on, except a mitzvah daraisa, that you have to pay people on time. That all of a sudden, you know, people became laxin. It's an obligation. It's an obligation that's so strong. They're postkim, they're tshuvas, responsibility that you're to deal with. You have a babysitter, you come back 12 o'clock at night, you reach into your wallet, you realize you have no cash. If you don't pay the babysitter that day, you violated this biblical commandment of paying a person on time. What about when you write a check? That's what post can deal with. What if you write a check? So if the bank is closed, the recipient of the check can't go cash the check. So do you view it, you've paid them on time because they have a check and the check is a commodity that's kind of like cash? Or do you know if the bank is closed and you can't cash the check, the check doesn't function as cash? It's as if you didn't pay the person on time. You have that discussion in a lot of areas of Allah. You also have that when it comes to Matanus Levyonim. Somebody who gives a check for Matanus Levyonim, let's say it's a Sunday, the bank is closed. So have you fulfilled the mitzvah of Matanus Levyonim if you give a check? Does a check function as cash? Is it a commodity that can be traded? In Israel, you do all the time. In Israel, people um, endorse the back of a check and pay with it <laughs> at the supermarket to friends. It's, it's, a check has the equivalent of cash. I don't think we yet have that in America, that we use the check like cash, that we endorse the back and exchange it one with another. In London also. So it's, a, it's an interesting halacha or application of this halacha, but you're not allowed to delay in paying uh, somebody. The obligation of, of the uh, widow and the orphan, we have to show them particular care, um, gifts to the poor, we have to pay them from our field, leave over for those who need. We have the Torah Makor, um, uh, the source of lashes to someone who uh, deserves, and uh, the penalty for embarrassing someone. And uh, finally, towards the end of the parsha, we have the obligation of honest weights and measures. You know, it's very popular to refer to certain behavior as to'eva, it's an abomination. And we know, same-sex marriage, big discussion, Jewish view of homosexuality, that the act is an abomination, not the people. The act is an abomination, it's a whole separate discussion. But there's also many other things the Torah calls an abomination. People with their righteous indignation are willing to point to the abomination of certain behaviors while they are immediately violating also things called an abomination. The end of our parsha is one example. Honest weights and measures. You have to be honest in business. If you're dishonest in business dealings, heavy-handed in business dealings, negotiate unfairly, misrepresent, dishonest marketing or advertising, dishonesty in business, Torah says, 
that anyone who does such is an abomination to Hashem, anyone who acts corruptly. It's nothing short of an abomination, no different than other acts we call an abomination. Someone who's not honest on their tax returns is as much of an abomination to the Almighty as people who do whatever they do in their bedroom. This is also an abomination. And finally, our Parsha concludes with the obligation of Zachor, this is of course Parsha Zachor, we read... Um, we read before Purim. Remember what Amalek did to us when we were vulnerable, when we left Egypt. They attacked us from behind, our women and children. They took advantage. They tried to introduce us to their philosophy of randomness and chance. They cooled us off from the, the feeling of our Sinai that we had. Don't forget and remember. Again, we could spend time on this. We're not going to today. There seems to be a dual mitzvah. You're supposed to wipe them out. Destroy any remembrance, but zachor, but remember. So which is it? Am I supposed to destroy and obliterate any remembrance? Well, if I do that, how can I zachor? How do I remember them? Which is it? Timcha zechar amalek? Or zachor is asher salach amalek? Destroy the memory of amalek? Or hold on to and remember what amalek did? That's the end of the parsha. That's also a big question. What's that going to do with the rest of the previous... We're, we're, we're not getting to it today. That's the overview. Now the psukah we're going to get to. Perach of Bez, Pasuk, Hey. That's where we left off last year. We were plowing through the mitzvahs one by one. I believe, you correct me if I'm wrong, that where we left off, la- well you can correct me but I'm still going to do this anyway. That where we left off last year was Perach of Bez, chapter 22, verse 5. Verse 5. Lo here is another example of something the Torah refers to as to'eva, as an abomination. And namely, it is anybody, male garb should not be on a woman, a woman should not dress in man's clothing, and a man shall not wear a woman's clothing. Anyone who does so is an abomination. What is so bad? What is so wrong about wearing each other's clothing? It's, a, it's repulsive. It's repulsive to the Almighty. So why is it considered repulsive? What is so terrible about it? Well, someone wants to be a cross-dresser. Okay, whatever. You know, you don't necessarily want your child to marry them. But why? what's so terrible about somebody who wants to wear the other's clothing? And how do you define this within halacha? It's a big question. You know, Rav Yosef has a tshuva. I have to be careful in saying this. A woman wearing pants. So Rav says, leave out the tzniyas component for a moment, which of course you can't. Divorce it. But in terms of this prohibition, is our pants exclusively a man's domain that you'd call it lo gever al isha if a woman were to wear them? Rabbi says no, because today in general culture women wear pants. If a man wears a wedding ring, is that a violation of lo gever simlas isha for a man to wear jewelry, for a man to wear a wedding ring? So the answer is today in general society it's acceptable, so it's not considered a Torah prohibition. So how you define it is relative to the time you're living and relative to the place you live in. But what's so terrible? Why are we against it? So says Rashi, Because if a woman is trying to appear like a man, In antiquity or in Rashi's time, when a woman would wear a man's clothing, it was so that she could socialize among men. Why would a woman want to socialize among men? She was trying to infiltrate a male population because she was seeking promiscuity. She was looking to have an affair. She was looking to meet men. So a woman who would dress this way was considered lewd, lascivious behavior. It was considered crude. She was trying to practice promiscuity. So therefore a woman was not allowed to dress like a man, says Rashi. The reason? It's an issue of promiscuity. It's an issue of licentiousness. To prevent, uh, to, to keep a separation of the sexes, a healthy boundary, so that uh, we would avoid inappropriate behavior. The opposite. A man's going to dress like a woman and he's going to hang out in the coffee clutch with the women and schmoozing and talking about women's things and whatever and they'll be so comfortable with him that one thing will lead to another because he's such uh, so comfortable among the women that it's going to lead to promiscuity. So this is a total prohibition. It applies not only to clothing. As I referenced already, it applies to jewelry. It applies to, from here we derive, the Gemara says, a man is not allowed to pluck out white hairs. If a man looks in the mirror and sees that, he, in fact, it's a prohibition of a man looking in the mirror. Gemara says men are not allowed to look in the mirror because vanity, being vain, is a woman's domain. Not in a negative sense. Women are trying to be attractive to men appropriately. Women value attractiveness. Men are not supposed to. And so the Gemara says, if a man looks in the mirror, 
The act of looking in the mirror is an act of vanity, and that's a woman's domain. That's a biblical prohibition of lo yilbash gever simlas isha. Now we say today, again, it's accepted in general society that men too look in the mirror, men groom themselves, that it's not. Plucking a white hair, are women allowed to, are men allowed to, sorry, color their hair? If a man is going, uh, let's say, prematurely gray, can he color his hair? Gemara talks about coloring your hair as being a woman's domain. So again, it's relative to the time and place you're living. What's sadly, our generation, men have taken upon a lot of women's domain. The men are, uh, we, we've, we've blurred a lot of the boundary of women wanting to, to have the appearance of men. Men have taken on many of the qualities of, of women, particularly in terms of vanity. But because they have, they, these things are not biblical prohibitions today. What? Can a man color his hair? So many Pesachim say yes, because today it's... Uh, again, some say no. Rav Aviner, in his She'ila uh, Shlomo, is very strongly against it. But I think it's relative to where you're living. It probably isn't the practice in the Yishuv world of, of uh, Beit El, where Rav Aviner is the Pesach, for men to color their hair. And I think men in, in the Yishuv world are very much less vain. But a uh, man living in Boca, maybe it's uh, more... You know, in, in Boca, I think there's a different uh, definition of... Uh, Appearance, vanity, and so on. Yes. Yeah, but cross-dressers today, I think, are on the fringe still of society. If a man were to walk in with a skirt, assuming he wasn't Scottish, we would, uh, you know, we would still be startled by it. So I think that clearly is the violation of the Yilbash Gevar Simlas Isha. There's actually an interesting discussion about it when it comes to Purim. A lot of people dress up on Purim. Men will dress up as a woman. They'll wear a skirt. Uh, a young girl will dress up as a man. Is that a violation, or do we suspend these rules for Purim? So the Raposkim spoke very strongly against it and say just because it's Purim, particularly a rabbinic holiday, these biblical prohibitions are not waived. They're not suspended. However, many Poskim are lenient and say, in that circumstance, it's not considered dressing as the opposite. That clearly is in, in the context of a costume. A costume is not in the framework of dressing like the opposite, and therefore it's not a prohibition. But I want to get back to the Mikros Kedolos. Our goal is to see the way that the, the commentators study the text. So, um, so Rashi said the issue is one of promiscuity. That's the issue. If a, ma- if a woman dresses like men, she'll be comfortable among the men. And if a woman's comfortable among the men, it's going to lead to promiscuity. And if a man dresses like a woman, he's going to be comfortable among the women. And, and, and clearly for Rashi, the fundamental reason for the prohibition is to maintain healthy boundaries. Because when boundaries are blurred and there's a, too much of a comfort level and we forget that someone is from the other, the other gender, then it's very easy for, um, for lines to be crossed and for horrible destructive, damaging, painful results to, to, uh, to come. Rashi says, Kisovas is considered an abomination. And what did the Torah prohibit? Wearing clothing which is going to result in this to'eva in being repulsive to the Almighty. You see, the Ibn Ezra, interestingly, says, what's the connection? What's the continuity here? How do we get into this? Parsha began by talking about those who go out to war and soldiers. How do we get into this issue of dressing, cross-dressing? Says the Ibn Ezra Pasuk Hey. Ibn Ezra says the connection is essentially that the healthy boundary, the distinction among the sexes is not one of only clothing, but it's one of attitude. Women were not designed to go to war. Warfare is is the male domain. Now, does that mean there shouldn't be women in the Israeli army, the American army? Certainly they have what to contribute. We welcome their contributions. It's not a, it's not a, this is not a, um, it's not, it's not a negative, it's not degrading to women. It's actually quite the opposite. It's putting women on a pedestal to say that being able to participate in war requires and mandates a certain level of cruelty. To be able to pull the trigger and take a human life, even if they're shooting at you, requires a certain level of cruelty requires the ability to say, I'm going to suspend any feeling right now. 
The soldier has no emotion. The soldier with emotion we send home from, from the battlefront. So women, thank God, and this is, I believe, what he reads. Maybe this is a modern-day editorializing of the of the Ibn Ezra, of Avram Ibn Ezra, the medieval Spanish commentator. I'm trying to make it politically correct, but I think when he writes that the purpose of women, women were created kiim lahakim hazera, in order to give birth. What is he saying? Men are for war and women are for making babies and that's the sum total of all of creation? I don't believe the Ibn Ezra means that. What I think what the Ibn Ezra is saying is women have a maternal instinct. And the woman's maternal instinct is one of kindness, compassion, love, nurturing, flexibility. There's a maternal instinct in a woman. You can't bring that maternal instinct out to war. And for you to go to war means to destroy and obliterate the maternal instinct within you and your species, your gender. And that's going to result in, in harming the next generation. Women will not be able to be successful mothers if they, if, they, uh, if they ruin that maternal instinct. So what the Ibn Ezra is saying is that the prohibition or the guidelines, the boundaries between the sexes is not limited to clothing per se, but there's also healthy boundaries and attitudes. Men and women were created different, just like biologically and anatomically. Nobody can debate anatomically men and women are different. A man could say, you know, Baruch Hashem, my wife is expecting right now. And thank God we have a lot of children. And every pregnancy, you'll all laugh at me like she does, I say, it's not fair. I want to know what it's like to have a human life inside me. I want to carry the baby. It's not fair to me. Torah is sexist. God is sexist. God is biased against men. I want to have a closeness with this child to have carried it for nine months. I want to know what it's like to have this development take place with inside me. To have it be nurtured and nourished from me, from my very being. It's not fair to me. So what's the answer? Tough luck. That's not how you were designed. Women were designed with this, biologically, and men were designed with this. And that's the reality of life. And whether you like it or don't like it, understand it or don't understand it, we each have our gifts, we each have our skills, and that's the reality. So the same is true in a spiritual sense. The same is true that we have healthy boundaries. Um, That doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions. Just like it's a rule to say that men are taller than women doesn't mean there aren't exceptions to the rule of women who will be taller than men. So too there are skill sets and predispositions of men that women don't have, or there are those of women that men don't have, and maintaining those healthy boundaries is important for the balance of the world. The Gemara says, why does every part of creation, why did God create male and female components to them? The entire animal kingdom has male and female components. Not only that, the plant world, scientists have said, if you look at the plant worlds, there are vegetation that has male and female components. Uh, there are male species and female species within the plant world, the vegetation world. Wonders the Gemara, why did God create it that way? And the Gemara concludes, because there's a certain balance to the universe, to the cosmos, which requires male and female components. There's masculinity and there's femininity, and when we upset the balance, we upset the world. And that's the nature of this mitzvah. Rashi says... No, it's a functional, it's a pragmatic purpose. Nothing to do with balance and masculinity and femininity. It has to do with promiscuity. We want a healthy separation of the boundaries because otherwise you're going to have orgies. Otherwise you're going to have infidelity. Otherwise you're going to have people sleeping with each other. It's going to ruin the family structure, family values. It's simply a pragmatic reason, a healthy separation of the sexes. Says the Ibn Ezra, it's more than that. There's healthy boundaries in order to preserve the, the special nature of men and women, masculinity and femininity. I'll give you another example. I mentioned this, I think, in the past also. Some suggest, and I say this at my own risk, this is why women can't be judges. The halacha is that women are not judges in, in Jewish law. Women don't sit on a basin. Why not? Does it have to do with their judgment? We question their judgment. Does it have to do with their... Does it have to do with their... Um, the trustworthiness, the credibility? No, of course, it has nothing to do with any of that. Women are trustworthy, women are credible. In fact, there are, there are areas of halacha where you could argue that they're more credible and trustworthy than men. We had it recently in the Dafyomi that it says that if a woman is a, a hostess and she turns to her husband, she's uncomfortable with a certain guest, we trust a woman's inclination over a man. If she says it doesn't sit right with me, her husband is obligated to listen. Bina Yaseira, it says that when man is separated uh, when woman rather is separated from man, it says that she's taken from. What's the lashon? What's the language of the Torah? I'm forgetting right now. But bina yaseder, we see from there. It says it says bina should have used a different word. That women are endowed with a certain uh, a greater intuition than men, a deeper penetrative knowledge, understanding, anticipation, foresight. 
and, and halacha respects the woman's intuition. So when it comes to credibility, it's more. So why can't a woman be a judge? It's a very simple reason. Because to be a judge, you have to suspend every component of your emotion. That was last week's Parsha. When you're a judge, you have to adjudicate the law. And you're going to look at that person, and a woman's going to say, uh, let's, let's give him one more chance. It's a Rachmanus. I know he went over the speed limit. I know he stole. But look, he, he grew up. He didn't have a mother that loved him. The cards were stacked against him. It's not his fault. Uh, let's give him one more chance. And Judaism says in order to adjudicate the law, to apply, to execute the law, you can't be emotional. So does it mean that women are incapable of suspending their emotions to be a judge? Of course they're capable. But we don't want them to. And that's why the halacha limits a woman from being a judge. Not because they're not capable. They are capable. We don't want them to. We already have a insensitive species of humanity. They're called men. We don't want a second one. So therefore we say let the men be the judges. And we'll try to work on men to be more sensitive. But women who innately have a greater sensitivity and a greater rachmanus, they're nurturing, they're loving, they're compassionate, they're forgiving, they give the benefit of the doubt. We want to preserve those qualities. So that's what the Ibn Ezra, I believe, is getting at over here. The Rashbam says, like his grandfather Rashi, Lo al isha, anoshim, Again, the Rashbam says, like his grandfather Rashi, that the reason for the prohibition is not to roam among the opposite gender. It will lead to znos. I see. Thing, I think from Rashi and the Ibn Ezra, you see two different perspectives on what is the nature of the prohibition of lo yilbash, lo silbash. You're not allowed to wear the opposite gender. That brings us up to pasuk vav, and this is the next mitzvah of the Torah. Ki yikare kan sipor lefanecha baderech b'chol eitzah ala aretz efrochim o beitzim v'aim ravetzes ala efrochim o ala beitzim lo sikach aim al habanim. Says the Torah, if you are a bird's nest happens to be before you on the road, on a tree, on the ground. Young birds are eggs. The mother is roosting on the young birds. She's sitting on the nest where the eggs. You're not allowed to take the birds of the eggs. While the mother is there, rather, what do you have to do? Shalach to shalach aim. If you're from London, you're hearing the London's Boys Choir song right now in your mind. Shalach, I will not imitate them. Shalach to shalach aim. Es abanim tikach lach. Man yitav lach viarachta yamim. Send away the mother bird. Take the young for yourself, so that it will be good for you, and you'll have long days. This is the mitzvah of shiluach hakan or shiluach hakain. This is the obligation of sending the mother bird away before you take the young. So there are a lot of insights I want to share with you here. There's a fundamental Ramban, a very long Ramban, but this is a mitzvah that um, is is really the symbol or the entire conversation about studying Tameha mitzvahs. Do we attribute the reasons for the mitzvahs <coughs> revolves around this mitzvah? First thing to notice, it's very interesting. It says, Ki ye kare kansipur. What does the word yikare mean? If you happen upon a nest, if you encounter a nest, now there's a halacha that comes out of this. Look at the Balaturim, Rav Yaakov ben Usher. Yikare kan, bigamatri is prat lemezumen. The Gemara in Chulin is what deals, the whole parak in Chulin that deals with this mitzvah of Shiloh HaKain. And the Gemara there says, Ki yikare. Because the Torah says, if you happen upon a nest, that limits if it's mezumen, if it's a nest that's owned. The mitzvah of Shiloh HaKain only applies to a nest that's hefker, that's ownerless. If it's your neighbor's backyard that the nest exists, you can't fulfill the mitzvah shiluch hakein. It's owned. The mitzvah does not apply to a nest with eggs that's owned. It only applies as if hefker, it's ownerless. Can you take your own nest and declare it ownerless? You have a nest in your backyard, there's a nest on your windowsill in your tree, so you want to fulfill this mitzvah, you'll declare it hefker. I relinquish my ownership, I no longer own the nest, so that I can fulfill the mitzvah. Does that work? It's Machlokas, Rav Shlomo Zalman and others. Some say yes, some say no. It's all the part of the definition of mezuman. How do you define to owned in this uh, context? Most, I believe, say that you can. You can declare it hefker and then do the mitzvah on it. But ki yikare, you happen upon the nest. It's interesting. How should that word be spelled? How do you spell happened upon? With a hey. Happened upon. What does that shorish, kuf, resh, aleph, and aleph mean? To call. So what is this verse really? How do you really translate the Pasuk? If you hear the birds or something. The nest is calling your name. Ki yikare kansipur lefanecha. 
You're walking and there's a nest calling your name. Fascinating. So there's a beautiful Dvar Torah. If you look, by the way, this is exact opposite of the end of the Parsha. The end of the Parsha, what's the character trait of Amalek? Asher Karcha Baderech. What is our, the indictment of Amalek? Amalek attacked us, and what was so terrible? Asher Karcha Baderech. Says Rashi, what does it mean, Karcha Baderech? The same Shorash as our word here, Ki Karei. So Rashi says it could mean a couple of things. It could mean Milashon Keri. If you learn the Daf we've been talking a lot about Keri, Bal Keri. Keri is a form of Tumah, impurity. They contaminated us. We were pure, lofty, enlightened, leaving our Sinai, highest of the highs. They brought us down. They contaminated us, so they made us impure. A second possibility of Rashi is Nashon Kor, Kor Vachom. They poured cold water on us. What do you mean? They literally threw water balloons at us? No. What does it mean? We were on fire. You know, you're on fire. You heard of Vartora, Drusha that inspired you. You were on fire. You wanted to be close to Hashem. Your davening was with Kavana. You were on fire. We left Harsinai. We were on fire. Amali came and they poured cold water on us. They doused us with cold water. And that's their, the indictment of them. How they could have done that. You leave a drusha and you're on fire. You want to be more inspired and be better mother, father, husband, wife. You want to daven better, do more mitzvahs, do more chesed. You're on fire. And as you're walking out, somebody says some cynical, sarcastic comment that just totally... Right. Fades you totally Just pours cold water All the excitement you had It's gone Their sarcastic comment Just sucked the life out of you That was a mullock That's what they did to us When we were leaving our Sinai But the third and final Interpretation of Rashi Asher karcha is milashon Mikra What's lashon mikra? Mikra means Random Chance Happenstance What's the philosophy of a mullock? Our Sinai taught us That everything has meaning And purpose and order that it wasn't random that we were slaves in Egypt for over 200 years, but there was a purpose to it. God is orchestrating the world. God has dominion over the world. That God is in control of our destiny. There's order, there's meaning, there's purpose to the universe. Amalek comes along and their philosophy is, there's no God. You know what there is? A big bang. There's no God, there's just science. And there's randomness, and there's chance, and there's nothingness. Right? There's an individual in our community whose opinions are, are somewhat questionable, even though he's very knowledgeable. And he, he, when he speaks to me, it's a, a little, I feel like I'm talking about Malik. He doesn't believe in Ashkacha Pratis. He doesn't believe in the, uh, that God um, interacts with man. He doesn't believe that what happens to us is, is comes from above. And he claims that that's the opinion of the Rambam Maimonides, even though he couldn't be more wrong. So he says, it's all statistics. This person died from a rare form of cancer and this person was cured of the terminal illness. God had nothing to do with either of them. Statistics. It's all about statistics. That's Amalek. Amalek is randomness, chance, statistics, statistical anomalies. You talk about statistics, that's Amalek. And that was, we came away from our Sinai. Kashbarhu, order, meaning, purpose to the universe. Hashem's involved in our lives. There's meaning. I have to introspect. I have to reflect. I have to figure out. I have to grow from everything that I experience because it all comes from Hashem. And comes along Amalek and says, Hashem, there's no God. Random, science, chance, rules of nature, entropy. That's all. That's all um, <coughs> Amalek. So comes along this mitzvah Shiloh HaKain. It says, Ki Karei Kansipur. Not with a hey. It's not chance. It's not random that you happened upon this nest. But rather, what is, what is it? With an aleph. The nest is calling your name. If you happened upon the nest, it wasn't by accident. And it wasn't statistics. And it wasn't random. And it wasn't chance. There was a reason. It happened for a reason. This is a Masorah of the Baal Shem, of a beautiful explanation of a mission in Pirkei Avos. It's my favorite Dvar Torah from the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov says, the Mishnah says, we should always remember I and Roa what's the Mishnah we should remember what is Da Mala Mala Mimcha Mimach know what is above you I and Roa Ozen Shamas V'kom Masecha Basefer Nechtavu know what is above you the eye sees the ear listens and everything you do is written so the classic understanding of the Mishnah means that everywhere you go in life know that the the, the tape recorder is on the video camera is on Big Brother yeah Big Brother's watching Right? You think that you, you know, you think you're alone, you think you're isolated, you think you get away. 
honest weights and measures, we talked about promiscuity, we talked about... The camera's always on. Right? Some describe that's heaven and hell. Heaven and hell is that hell is when you die, Hashem sits next to you with everyone you ever know and presses play and watches your life. Every aspect of your life. Whether it's the way you interacted with the people around you or what you did privately and now you filled out your tax returns. And, and that tshuva is the ability to edit the film. Tshuva is the ability to edit the film. So that when we watch it, we can make sure that what we're watching is only a glorious movie at the end. Tshuva is the ability to edit the film. So the classic understanding of the mission is there's an eye watching is Hashem, there's an ear listening is Hashem, and everything we do is recorded in a book. That's Hashem. By the way, there's no, there is no generation in the history of humanity who could relate to this more than ours. Why? Because that's literally what's happening in our lives. Everything you've done on the internet, it's in there. It's recorded in cyberspace forever. You think you deleted it? You think that you undid it? You think you erased it? Facebook and Twitter, every website you visited, every image you looked at, it is permanently part of the record. Somewhere in some storage house in desert in Arizona. Whatever we've done, whatever we've looked at, Ayin Roa, Ozen Shomas, but Sefer Nechtavim, literally it's part of the record. There are satellites that are beaming down that are recording our movement. Our generation can appreciate more than any other. But the Baal Shem encouraged us to read the Mishnah differently. Listen to what he said. He said, Know what is above you. And if you realize that there's an omnipotent, infinite being above you who orchestrates the world, then you'll know that I and Ro- that what you see, you were meant to see. You were meant to encounter. Ozen Shomas, what you heard, live your life realizing you were meant to hear it. And Kol Maasecha, what you do with what you saw and what you heard, that's what gets recorded. Hashem said, if you were near something, you saw an episode, you saw something occur, it wasn't random, it wasn't chance. It was by design for you to say, why was I meant to see that? Why was I meant to hear that? You overheard two people talking, like Mordechai overheard, and did something with that information. You saw something that maybe you shouldn't have seen, you should see, you weren't intended to see, quotes... Ayin Roa. If you realize if you know there's something above you, then you'll realize that everything you see, you are meant to see. Bashem Tov wrote it in terms of somebody, I believe he said it in the context of somebody who witnessed the Chilo Shabbos and was so disturbed by seeing somebody being Mechalo Shabbos, violating Shabbos. Bashem said, you are meant to see that. You have to think to yourself about the way you keep Shabbos, what Shabbos means to you. Whatever we see, we were meant to see. What we hear, we were meant to hear. What we encounter, we were meant to encounter. And it will be written, it will be recorded, what we did with it. Did we ignore it? Were we indifferent to it? Did we move on from it? Or did it impact us somehow? Because everything our eyes take in, every image we see, everything we hear, every sound wave that penetrates, it should impact us in a meaningful way. And if it doesn't, then we're living our life with blinders. If it doesn't, then we've taken our hearing aid out, we're just coasting through life, not wanting to hear it. It's the difference of, of Rachav and Yisro. The Medrash says that Rachav and Yisro, two non-Jews who live life with their eyes and their ears open. The rest of the world also heard about the miracles that happened to the Jewish people. Guess what? Came in one ear and went out the other. Came in one image and out the other. But they, they saw and heard things in a way that impacted and transformed them. That Basefer Nechtavim, it changed their lives and changed our destiny forever. And that's what's supposed to be with us. So that's the first thought I wanted to share on, on, on uh, Shiloh HaKain, Shiloh HaKan. Ki yikare with an Aleph. It's not Mikra like Amalek. It's not chance and randomness and happenstance and whatever happens in life. Uh, statistical anomalies. No, with an Aleph, it's calling your name. You see something, whether it's the nest with a mother bird and eggs, ki yikare with an Aleph. What we see in life, it's calling our name. It's meant for us to do. And not anybody else. Mari. To add to what you say, even if it doesn't work out to the way of your expectations, that's how it was meant to be as well. Right. It's a hard concept for people. Even after you live your life, you're saying, and things don't work out the way you hoped or wanted, that too is part of what was meant to be. That's the moment of truth that you have to. is, I'll tell you a beautiful word. I'm not going to have time to get to any of this that I wanted to get to. Well, we're supposed to go through this Ramban, the Pesukim, this phenomenal Kliyakar. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you another word about that. It's one, another one of my favorite. The Slav Rebbe, the Nesiv Shalom of Shalom Nach Barzavsky, He says the following. 
the um, Rabbeinu Yonah counts when the Avram Avinu went through ten tests. Asarnas Yonah Nisnasu Avram Avinu. The Mishnah in Pirkei says Avram endured ten tests. We've spoken in the past about what is a test. Test is really not a test, it's an opportunity. We discover things about ourselves we didn't know. Avram endured ten tests. How do you count the ten tests? You go through Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, and you begin knowing that information that there are ten tests. How do you count the ten tests? So, the different proportion of different commentators arrive at different conclusions. How do you count the ten? Most of them see the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Right? We just lived through the binding of Isaac. Now New Orleans is going to face it in the next couple of days. We wish them lots of luck. We hope they pass the test of the binding of Isaac. Um, most count Yit- Akedah Yitzchak as the tenth test. Not Rabbeinu Yonah. You know what Rabbeinu Yonah says is the tenth test? Chaye Sarah. What happens at the beginning of Chaye Sarah? Avram returns from the Akedah and he discovers what happened to Sarah? She died. And how did she die? She heard about it. It's a diagnosis that we throw around in our vernacular but we don't really mean. She was scared to death. She heard that Avram went to go take the life of her only son, her precious son, her son she waited all those years to have. And she heard that information she got scared to death. Says Rabbeinu Yonah that was the tenth test. To nevertheless maintain his faith and to have no regret over what he did, even though it turned out the way it did, that was the tenth test. Because how often in life do we make a decision that we determine or think is the right decision and it doesn't turn out the way that we hoped? Do we look back and regret it? Does it impact us negatively? That was the tenth test of Avram. Says the son of Marebbe, most magnificent. He says, that's Pshat. You know we say in Marv every night. V'haser satan milfanenu Remove the satan, remove the Satan, remove that negative, toxic voice in our ears from before us and from after us. Says the Salam Rebbe, from before us I understand. The, that negative voice is telling me, eat the che- chocolate cake, lie on my income tax, be cruel to my children or spouse. I understand that voice in front of me. What does it mean the voice after me? Says the Salam Rebbe, it means this word of, of Avram. It means... After something, do we regret it? When it didn't work out the way we hoped for. But we made the right decision. But it didn't work out the way we hoped. Do we come to regret having made the right decision? Having conducted ourselves in the right way? The, the ability to not live with regret, that's the test in our lives. That was the tenth test of Avram. And that's what we daven every night in Marav. Haser satenu, remove the satan, both milfanenu from in front of us, and me'acharenu from behind us as well. Okay, but back to the Pesukim. We have a few more minutes. Are you looking at the Rambam or not? We're going to get to the Rambam. We haven't looked at it yet. Oh. Says the... Before we get to the Rambam. There's a fundamental... We don't have time to get through all of this. There's a fundamental question. Is mitzvah shiluch hakein, is it an obligatory mitzvah? Am I obligated to go search out a nest and send the mother bird away? Is it a mitzvah only when I encounter a nest? Or is it a mitzvah only when I need the eggs? If I have no use or need for the eggs, do I still have a mitzvah? Do I still have a mitzvah? To send the mother bird away, take the eggs and then put them back. Or is it only a mitzvah when I need the eggs? That's a machlokas. It seems in the Gemara, in, I think it's this eighth parak of Chulun, I forget, but it's in the end of Chulun. It's a machlokas. Ach, uh, Rishonim, Achronim, Poskim, the Minchas Chinuch and the Rashash. It's a big machlokas. What is the nature of the mitzvah of Shiloh Hakain? When do you have to send it? Uh, when do you have to send the mother bird away? The uh, the Torah tells us that there's a great reward. Right? Let's skip to the end for a moment. It says, If you send the mother bird away, it will be good for you. The yamim, and you'll live a long. Life says Rashi Laman Yitavlach in Mitzvah Kalasha in Bam Mechesrim Kis Amrator Laman Yitavlach Barach to Yamim Kalvachomer Laman Scharn Shal Mitzvah Chamuros. This is an easy mitzvah and it doesn't cost you anything. You shoo the mother bird away, you take the eggs, you either keep them, you put them back. That's the whole mitzvah. How much did that cost you? Gornished. Not talking about a Lulav and Esrog, the deluxe set. Cost you nothing, and yet the Torah promises you great reward. Says Rashi, imagine all the more so the great reward you'll receive when you do a mitzvah that's difficult. If that's the reward, if that's the promise for doing an easy mitzvah, imagine the reward for doing a difficult and a great mitzvah. How is that an easy mitzvah? I don't see that that's easy at all. You shoo the mother bird away. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to go anywhere. I understand, but the, the act itself, the behavior... 
I understand, but the act itself is is uh, is considered at least considered to be easy. The the kliyakar uh, Rav Lunshitz also elaborates. Where else do we see this exact language? We find it with kibravaim, not in Yisro, but in Vaschanan. In the second time that we learn about the Aseris of Dibros, yeah. in fact, there's a big discrepancy. First time it just said, it tells us the mitzvah. Second, it says, so it'll be good for you. And it'll be, have a long life. The Abar Benel there, by the way, says a beautiful word. What do you mean you live a long life? Says the Abar Benel, what? Anyone who's honored their parents, we see that they have longevity. Yesterday, the oldest woman in the world celebrated her 116th birthday. I said, here's to four more years. Enjoy the next four years. Right? The oldest woman in the world celebrated her 116th birthday. Why? Because she honored her parents. She married a long life. The Barbanel says, it's not a promise of quantity. It's a promise of quality. If you honor your parents, what will your children do? They'll see and imitate and honor you. I've seen it. People who take good care of their parents, their children are watching. And when it's turned for time for them to get old and they need help, their children will imitate what their parents saw. And the people who are negative and bitter and resentful and don't take care of their parents, they're on their own when they get old and sick because their children imitate what they saw. Says the Abarbanel, the promise is yamim is not a quantitative promise, but a qualitative promise. So says the Kliyakar, just like we had the promise in Aseris Adibros, when it came to Kibir Ave'em, we have it here. Says the Kliyakar, I understand when it comes to children, you treat your parents well, your children will see they'll treat you well. So similarly here, what's the manitavlach? When your children see the compassion and the kindness that you have, you're sending the mother bird away because you don't want the mother bird to see you taking her eggs. That's an act of compassion. When your children see the sensitivity with which you carry yourself, they will learn it and carry that sensitivity towards you. Why is the reward for both of these longevity because both of them have to do with renewal just like continuity is because there's a renewal there's another cause every result has a cause every child has a mother and if you trace back every if every cause has a if every result has a cause you're going to trace it back to the first cause this is one of the evidence of God's existence, one of the proofs that's brought, the first cause argument it's called, that if there's a result, if there's a cause for every result, you trace it back to the first cause, there's a God. So what's at the root of Shiloh HaKain? Amuna. Why am I taking, sending the mother a bird away to take care of the eggs? I'm noting the continuity that there are eggs that come from a mother. And every time I see the notion of continuity of mother and children, it reminds me of the first cause argument. So therefore, the mitzvah of Shiluch HaKain says the Kliyakar is an exercise in Amuna. Kibarav Aim is an exercise in Amuva, in Amuna, and so is Shiluch HaKain. The Gemara says in Kedushin, if you honor your parents, it's like you honor God. If you dishonor your parents, it's as if you dishonored God. Why? Because there's really three partners in the creation of man. Man, woman, and God. Not to suggest God's in the bedroom per se, but it means that man and woman mix the ingredients. But whether the ingredients will take and be endowed with a soul and emerge as a man, that's the third partner. That's up to God. So when you honor your parents, you're honoring God. I always have the image of, you know, we live life looking forward. On a forward trajectory. When we honor our parents, we take a moment to turn around and recognize that we don't come from nowhere, we come from somewhere. So what happens when we turn around to take that moment to see our parents? If we look over our parents, we see behind them stand our grandparents, and behind them our great-grandparents. And if we look far enough away, what do we see all the way in the back? The Almighty Himself. So to honor our parents is to honor God, is to realize that we're not independent, we don't come from nowhere, we come from somewhere. So similarly, he says here, when you're honoring the notion of eggs coming from a mother bird, you're honoring the hishtalshilas, you're honoring the concept of continuity, of generations, of regeneration. And therefore, there is a similarity between honoring parents and shiluch namely an exercise in amuna, and that's why both of them merit 
Both of them merit arichas yamim. They both merit longevity. And leman yitavlach, they both merit a good life. And that's why the reward is the next pasuk. Kisivne bayis chadash ra'asisa When you build a new home, you have to put up a fence. Continues the kliyakar, quoting the medrash tanchuma. Why do we have the mitzvah of Shiloh HaKain right next to the mitzvah if you build a new home you have to put up a fence? Because the merit for fulfilling Shiloh HaKain and reward for the mitzvah of Shiloh HaKain is your merit to build a new home. Why? Because that's Mida Keneged Mida, he says. You have a moon in Hashem. If you trust in Hashem, you'll reap the rewards and the benefit. You'll merit to have a new home. You'll merit the material blessing. So the Kriyakar says... That's the reward for doing the mitzvah. That's how he understands Laman Yaman Yitavlach and Arichas Yamim. Says the Sforno a different reason. Look at the Rabavadya Sforno. Your by by fulfilling Shiloh Hakain, you're doing a chesed not just to the mother, you're doing a chesed to everyone. Remember whose nest is this? Does it belong to any private person? No, not if you're doing the mitzvah Shiloh Kain. It's hefker. It's ownerless. It's public. So what you're taking care of the eggs that belong to the public. So that's why you get Arichas Yamin because you're doing a mitzvah of something, with something that's hefker, with something that is ownerless. We find it's brought down in a number of legitimate sources as opposed to illegitimate sources that there's a great reward for doing this mitzvah. There's a number of midrashim that say that the reward for this mitzvah, the Medrash Rabbah and Kiseitzei, the Yalkut Shemoni, both, they, they derive it from the words, Ve'es habanim tikachlach, and the children you take for yourself, they derive from here that the mitzvah Shiloh HaKain is a school for having children. If people are struggling having children, they should try to fulfill the mitzvah of Shiloh HaKain. We generally, I generally don't subscribe to schoolers in general. As, as when they take the form of superstition. But this one is not superstition. This one, the, the uh, Medrash Rabbah, the al Shimoni, both take off on the words, Ve'esa banam tikach If you long for children, you will get children if you take the eggs and send the mother bird away. What does it mean? So I'd like to suggest, it doesn't mean a school like it's random. To believe in school like superstition, that it's random, God gives you reward for doing a random act of sending the mother bird away, I think is foreign to our religion. To me what it means is that if you go through this exercise in Amuna we just described, if you have an exercise in sensitivity, you display to Hashem, I am, I am fit to be a parent, because look at the sensitivity I have to send the mother bird away, then you merit being a parent. It's not a random school as in superstition. It is an exercise in, in Amuna. It's an exercise in showing you're being fit to be a parent. It's reaching out to it's reaching out to Hashem. It's also quoted the skula in the Sefer Achinach as well. Others also quote this as a skula for getting married. The Tanchuma and the Kliyaka we just saw say that if you fulfill this mitzvah, then what's the next pasuk? You'll build a new home and you'll take a wife. So it's a school for Parnassa, it's a school for getting married and for having a new home, for building a home with a woman, is to fulfill this mitzvah. And that's why many go out and try to fulfill this mitzvah. Just a few details of this mitzvah very quickly. The mitzvah is only performed, it can be performed by men or women or children. It can't be done on Shabbos Yontif, but any time during the week. Um, it can only be done on kosher birds. The mitzvah Shiloh HaKain is not on any bird. It can only be done on a kosher bird. Um, and uh, some examples of birds which qualify, a robin, a goose, a duck, a dove, a cardinal, um, a pigeon, a sparrow. Even though a pigeon is not a kosher bird for the definition of, of having a tradition of its signs. It's a kosher bird in terms of meeting the criteria that the Torah provides. So we have we have three different categories of kosher bird. One that would allow us to eat it, another that's not kosher enough that it has a masorah, it has a tradition in which we can eat it, but we can fulfill the mitzvah here. And birds which are designated as definitely non-kosher, which are not allowed to, like birds of prey, eagles or ravens or birds of prey are definitely not kosher, you can't do the mitzvah. But that middle category that it's not kosher enough to eat it, but it's still a kosher bird that it has the signs that you can do the, the mitzvah on. It's only fulfilled when the mother bird is roosting. She has to be touching or hovering above the eggs themselves. If she's to the side of the eggs, not a top of the eggs, you don't fulfill it. You send the mother bird away, you take the um, ne- you take the eggs out, you have to lift them three tfachim, and then you could put them back. If you don't need them, you could then put, put them back 
and you fulfill the the mitzvah. Again, oh, excellent question. Sarah's so asking an excellent question. So the whole purpose of the mitzvah is to be kind, to send the mother bird away. But if you're not even going to use the eggs, isn't it? Isn't it a matter of being cruel? So I'll skip to. I really wanted to get to the um, to the Ramban. We're not going to get to it. No, please God, next year we'll start with the Ramban. It's too long to get to. But I'll leave you with this. There's a big machlok, as I mentioned. There's a big debate. Do you have a mitzvah of shiluach hakain even when you don't want the eggs? It's a big debate in the Gemara, Rishonim, Achronim, and contemporary poskim even today. And if you look at the way the opinions line up, it essentially they line up the rationalists against the mystics. The rationalists say there's no mitzvah if you don't want the eggs. It doesn't make sense. The mystics still say there is. And it's based on a Zohar. And what does the Zohar say? He says the reason for Shiluach HaKain is to incite... We, we display cruelty, actually, in order to provoke the mercy of Hashem. When you send the mother bird away and the mother longs to be with her eggs, we are reminding Hashem that we are in exile and we try to provoke Hashem as our mother bird to return to the nest and to be together with us. That's the Zohar, that's the mystical perspective on this mitzvah. So based on that perspective, the mystics... Um, say that there still is a mitzvah and not only a mitzvah if you happen upon the uh, nest or you need the eggs but you should seek it out because through the act of sending the mother bird away that seeming act of cruelty will provoke God's mercy we say God you are our mother bird away and just as that mother bird yearns to come back and be reunited with her eggs we want you to yearn to be reunited with us so those are the longs those are along the lines of this uh, machloka so the Ramban is the key discussion because the Gemara and Brachos those doing the da- We'll get to it in about 10 days. The Gemara and Bracha says, Anyone who says that the reason for the mitzvah of Shiluch HaKain is because God, you have mercy on eggs, on the mother bird, we silence such an individual. Why do we silence such an individual? Is it the reason? Is it not the reason? Some fundamental debate between the Ramban and the Rambam. Is it only in davening you shouldn't say that, but out of davening it's okay to say because it it's true? Is it we never say it because it's not about the eggs, it's about cultivating compassion within us? What is it? Do we study Tamea Mitzvos or we don't study Tamea Mitzvos? That's all what I wanted to get to, but that's what we'll start with next year. Have a great week and a great Shabbos.